Hello, welcome to this month's edition of Cybar. Our podcast in January 2014 was with Professor Frank Close, Professor of Theoretical Physics at Oxford University. Frank Close was talking to us about the Higgs boson and the discovery by the team at CERN. We joined Frank in front of a packed audience at the pub just as he's explaining why although Beethoven had to be note perfect and Shakespeare had to be word perfect, Peter Higgs had to be even more brilliant than the two of them to achieve his Nobel Prize. Over to Frank. In the equations of the Higgs mechanism or whatever, it doesn't work. And that's the critical thing. It doesn't matter how beautiful your ideas might appear to be. If nature doesn't do it that way, bad luck. I mean, that's the the tough cheese of theoretical physics. Uh, But I also made that point because um, those of you who have followed the saga over the last year or two may well be aware that, of course, the Nobel Prize can be shared by, at most, three individuals. And there's all a question about, did the discovery of the boson merit a Nobel Prize to the experimentalists? That's, That's one other question. But the question which was intriguing me for a long time and which the Infinity Puzzle was very much driven by, was the following one. There were six people of whom Peter Higgs was one. There were six people in 1964, half a century ago, who within the space of a couple of months all came up with pretty well the same idea. And this idea, it basically is, how do the fundamental particles of matter get mass? But that was the fundamental idea. And there was a lot of media conjecture when it was becoming clear that this idea was about to be proved correct. How could the Nobel Committee select three out of those six? And to my mind, the answer was, was obvious, but I won't go into to that here unless you want to, to know more about it. But the point was this, that of those six, you could argue about five of them, but Peter Higgs was the only one out of that six who had pointed out that there is an experimentally testable consequence of this beautiful idea, namely that there should be this particle, which has been called the Higgs boson, and if you can produce this thing in an experiment and see if it has all the properties that it ought to have, then you have proved that the idea is correct. And so, to me, that was the critical thing. That was my analogy of the Shakespeare versus theoretical physics. You can write beautiful ideas, and if nature doesn't do them, it's irrelevant. So the critical thing that distinguishes real science from speculation is can you find an experimental consequence of your idea and if so then it can be tested and proved Um, and Higgs alone did that so what was it all about well I stood up on the stage with him and I started off by saying so 50 years ago 64 you were scribbling these equations on a piece of paper and as a result of that 50 years later we have got a 27-kilometre ring of magnets underneath the Swiss countryside, smashing beams of protons head-on head into each other at nearly the speed of light. We have got detectors to see what happens when they smash together. The detectors are the size of battleships. The experimentalists are in collaborations of 3,000... There, there were two collaborations with 3,000 people apiece in them, worldwide things. And after all this time... Um, the total cost has accumulated to be about 10 billion euros. So I said, Peter, if tomorrow you found a mistake in your equations, would you tell anybody? <laughs> of course, we now know there weren't any, uh, wasn't a mistake in the equations, um, and the experiments proved the idea was right. But this 10 billion euros was sort of sticking in my head because, of course, the particle was found, and um, this last December, um, he and another person uh, shared the Nobel Prize. But last summer, um, every year, the Royal Society have a a science exhibition that takes place. And one of the exhibits uh, this year was about the Higgs boson. And it runs for a whole week. You have school parties come during the day. You have general public all the time. There are a couple of evenings when sort of dignitaries turn up. And I got ferried in to stand on the stand uh, for one of these evenings when among the people that might arrive was going to be George Osborne, the Chancellor. And so I thought... If he comes along and says, what have we got for our 10 billion euros? <laughs> you know, what's the answer to this? And I thought, well, the answer is uh, this. 
we now know something. We have, we have speculated and believed for 50 years that this is how things are. Now we know forever that that is how nature works so that future generations can build upon that certainty. I mean, what they might find with it is, uh, of course, wonders for the future. But we, have, we now know something. And you know, if you mortgage 10 billion euros off to infinity, it's, it costs you nothing. Luckily, he didn't come and answer the question, because I then began to realize we're not going to be here till infinity. In fact, it's about a billion years from now the sun will have probably uh, enveloped us so that uh, life on Earth will be at most a billion years, which comes out as 10 euros per year uh, for, the, for, the infinite, well, for the rest of the, the life on Earth. And the moment you start playing with numbers like that, you can start thinking, next time you hear, as I heard last week on the Today programme, you know, all about Scottish independence and who's going to take responsibility for the trillion pound debt or something that we currently have, and so this statement which said that the British government will take responsibility for the trillion pound national debt. And I thought, taking responsibility for a trillion pound debt in a billion years, that's three pounds a day. And that's the moment when you realise that economics is even harder than physics. So um, having got out of that, w w so what is it all about? Well, the code phrase that one used to hear a lot is that the, the Higgs business is all about how particles gain mass which is sort of true, but not really. It deals with how the fundamental particles get mass, like the electron, for example, on the outer reaches of the atom, or the quarks that are buried inside the nuclear particles at the centre of the atom. But it says nothing at all about where the nucleus gets its mass from. I mean, most of the mass of us is buried in the atomic nuclei inside the atoms of our bodies. And that mass has essentially nothing at all to do with this Higgs business. What the Higgs business does is give structure to things. And, and this is what I, what I mean by this. That let's take the simplest atom of all, hydrogen, a single proton and an electron on the outside. Why does hydrogen have the size that it does? Well, in part, it's because of the strength of the electromagnetic force. But there has to be something that gives a dimension. And it's the mass of the electron that gives the dimension to the size of the hydrogen atom. If you... If the electron was more massive than it is, the hydrogen atom would be smaller. And conversely, if the electron were lighter than it is, the hydrogen atom would be bigger. So if the electron had zero mass, the hydrogen atom would be infinitely big, which is a way of saying it wouldn't exist. So the fact that the hydrogen atom, or if you like, atoms in general, exist with the size is because the electron has a mass, and we now know that is as a result of this mysterious mechanism. That bit is probably relatively believable. The next bit is a bit more subtle. It turns out that the fact that the nucleus is compact and localized is, by a series of arguments which we don't need to go into here, linked to the fact that the quarks inside the protons and neutrons have mass. If the quarks had no mass at all, then the force between protons and neutrons would be long range. Whereas the fact that quarks have a little bit of mass, thanks to this Higgs mechanism, makes the force between protons and neutrons very, very short range. So it's the quarks having mass which makes a compact nucleus. It's the electron having a mass which makes the atom have a size. So it's in that sense, I say, it gives rise to structure as we know it. The other thing which is important for us being here, linked to this mechanism, is actually the thing that they were interested in in 1964, and it is this. That you know, we're seeing each other at the moment courtesy of electromagnetic rays. Um, the electromagnetic force is at work. There are other forces at work. In particular, there's one called the weak force, which is responsible for uh, beta radioactivity. And the weak force is the one that is responsible for the speed that the sun burns. I mean, the, the center of the sun, uh, the sun is primarily made of uh, hydrogen protons, which bump into each other. And then by a series of processes, protons bumping into each other will eventually convert into helium, leaving helium as the ash, if you like, and radiant energy flow out. But the, the first stage of this is those two protons bumping into each other and turning proton into neutron to make, make helium. And the force that causes that to happen is the weak force. It's called weak because it's very feeble. And it's a good job it's feeble because... Um, it's so feeble that the sun is only just staying alight. In fact, the sun has been around for five billion years so far. It's about halfway through 
its burning cycle. So it's a way of saying if you were a proton in the centre of the sun five billion years ago, today there is still only a 50-50 chance that you will have bumped into another one and set the, the whole fusion cycle going. And that rarity of it happening is because the weak force is so feeble. And the weak force is feeble, we now know, because the W boson, the thing that transmits the weak force in an analogous way that photons transmit the electromagnetic force, whereas photons have no mass, the W boson is very massive. It's the very mass of the W that makes the weak force weak. And the weak force being weak means the sun burns slowly. The sun burns slowly means that five billion years of evolution has happened so that we can be here. If the W boson had had no mass at all, the weak force wouldn't have been weak, it would have been pretty powerful, and the sun would have burnt out almost immediately. The W boson having a mass is, we now know, because of this Higgs mechanism. So that is the other feature of this which is very relevant. It's not esoteric, it is actually critical to structure and evolution having taken place quite slow, uh, the sun burning slowly so that we, we can be here. So that is why I think it is significant. Um, I suppose you want to know how does it work, and there are many analogies around, none of which, in my opinion, really are very true. They're more misleading than others. Um, but I will tell you something which is not an analogy. It is actually where Higgs and Co. got the idea from. Um, and it relies upon people being over about 50 years old. And there are a few of us here. Or, well, this is the problem. You know, I, I, nowadays, if you listen to the radio, you do it on your internet. Okay? In the old days, we used to listen to real radios, which you know, picked up radio stations like you do in your car, probably still. And occasionally, sometimes, you could hear a radio station from New York. And what had happened was this because, you know, of course, the, the curvature of the Earth, you would think, how does that happen? That above our heads um, is the ionosphere, the, the Appleton layer. And that is a plasma. Um, what a plasma is, we don't need to go into, but it, it is a plasma. And there's an interesting property of plasmas, which is that electromagnetic waves, if the, if the wave is low frequency it gets reflected from the plasma. It doesn't get in. And that is what's happening with the, the radio signal from New York. You know, a long-wave radio signal coming up out into space hits the ionosphere and bounces back down into the radio here in Oxford. So that is an example of a low-frequency wave not getting into the plasma. Yet, at the same time, we can sit and look through the plasma and see the stars shining because the stars are shining in high-frequency electromagnetic waves, which happily come through. So the property, just to ta carry away with you, is that plasmas happily transmit electromagnetic radiation if the frequency is high enough, but not if the frequency is very low. What's that got to do with the price of fish? Well, imagine that we were creatures that lived inside that plasma. We would experience electromagnetic radiation the following way we'd be quite happy seeing the stars, high-frequency waves, but we'd never hear low-frequency radio signals. So we would have the impression that the electromagnetic spectrum comes from high frequency down here and then suddenly stops. There would be a minimum frequency to the electromagnetic radiation. Now, frequency, we know in quantum theory, is like energy. Energy is proportional to frequency, and we know that energy is proportional to mc squared. Something with a minimum frequency is saying that the photons carrying it act as if they have a minimum energy, and that is the property of something that has mass. mc squared is the minimum energy that you can have when you're at rest. If your mass is nothing, it could be nothing. If there's a minimum energy, there's an mc squared there. So inside the plasma, your whole experience of electromagnetic radiation would be as if the photons had mass. Now, of course, we being smart, living outside the plasma, know what's going on. It's because the way that the, the wave interacts with the plasma gives it that apparent property. But there's a creature living inside the plasma, who, if you like, doesn't know the plasma's there, they interpret the photon as having a mass. 
And that's the basic idea that was around even before Higgs and people. It was due to a, a man called Anderson who got the Nobel Prize for something else. But what Higgs and people did was said, let's suppose that the whole of the universe was filled with some mysterious stuff. I'll, I'll call it plasma in quotes. Okay? Um, so we are creatures living inside this stuff that we'd never realised before. Now this plasma is not, th this stuff doesn't affect real photons, but it affects W bosons. So that W bosons have a mass, we perceive them to have a mass, because of the way they interact with this mysterious stuff. If we, if we were able to live outside the universe and say, oh, these clowns here in Oxford are really living in this stuff, that the W boson really has got no mass at all, it's just when it interacts with that mysterious stuff, it has all the properties that those dumb cops think it's got mass. So you can play it one way. You can, you can say, actually, if I'm really smart, no particles at all have any mass. It's the way they interact with this stuff. And that's a really messy way to go ahead. The easier way to say is, let's ignore the stuff and pretend they have mass, because that's the way that science has developed for the last 300 years. And basically, that is the gist of their idea, that there is this weird stuff. It's been called the Higgs field, to give it a name. And we're immersed in it. And that is the fact that as particles propagate through it, and they feel it and interact with it, they gain this property that we interpret as mass. Now, at some point here, somebody's going to say, just a second... Um, I thought that the ether disappeared somewhere around 1905, and have you just reinvented the ether? To which the short answer is yes. Um, and that is why what these gentlemen did was not trivial in the jargon. The, the basic idea of Mr. Anderson applies to real plasmas, which are things sitting there, static in some frame of reference, for which relativity doesn't care. So what Higgs and people did was made a relativistic generalisation of that idea, which works. However, we now know, and this is the thing I'm still troubled by, actually, going back to, did we get rid of the ether? Well, the Michelson-Morley experiment, which is the famous one that shone light and bounced it around and inferred that there wasn't any ether it was going through, was using photons. And photons, we now know miraculously, are the one particle that is massless to which this mysterious stuff is as if it wasn't there. So the, the experiment that was done back in the 19th century um, to look to see if there was an ether used the one beam that is impervious to it. Um, the first beam that was used that is not impervious to it was this colliding machine in, in Geneva the last couple of years ago. Uh, that's a, a, one way of looking at it. Not the one I necessarily recommend. Uh, what else do you want to know? What you want to know is what do we not know, or we don't know a lot. Um, so I think it is true... I mean, the, well, let's just take the one final step. So what is this Higgs boson, and what, how does that relate to this mysterious stuff in the plasma? Um, let's draw an analogy with something familiar, like the electromagnetic field. The Earth has a magnetic field, though you're not sort of aware of it around you, unless you take a magnet out of your pocket or take one of these things and press the little thing which says compass and try to convince the audience that it's now telling which direction is north. Actually, this is not doing that because it's talking to GPS things, so it's a bit of a cheat. But in the old days, you could take, well, I've got a compass on the back of my backpack, you know. So the compass needle suddenly swings chung, and points sort of that way-ish. Now, it's not actually showing you the magnetic field. It is pointing the direction of the magnetic field because the magnetic field has got direction. Um, the Higgs field is like the magnetic field, except that it doesn't have any sense of direction. It, it just is. It's uniform in all directions. So what's the analogy got to do with uh, electromagnetism? Well, it's this. If you pump energy into an electromagnetic field, you create a wave. And that's how we're seeing each other. I mean, you know, it's enough to flick the light switch to put enough energy in to set electromagnetic waves propagating around so we can see each other. And the reason is that, of course, electromagnetic waves in quantum theory are carried by photons, which have zero mass. And so you only have to put a little bit of energy in to, to excite them. Exactly analogous thing with this Higgs field. If you put just the right amount of energy in, you can excite Higgs waves, which in quantum theory will come in little bundles called Higgs bosons. 
the basic difference for our purposes between the photon and the Higgs boson is the photon's got no mass, so it, you can easily excite it. The Higgs boson, we now know, uh, has a mass of about 120 times greater than a hydrogen atom. So you've got to focus that amount of energy in order to make it bubble out. And that is why, although the guys had the idea in 1964, it wasn't until this last few years we've been able to have a technology capable of focusing that amount of energy in order to make the thing manifest itself. So that is why it has taken uh, only until now with the Large Hadron Collider at CERN to be able to achieve that. So the question then is, so you've, this thing has bubbled out and appeared in the experiment. How do you know it's the Higgs boson or not something else? Uh, well, that's a fair question. Um, the Higgs boson, in the theory, and this is what Higgs, and this is to my mind what Higgs' contribution really was, it's 1964 when these guys had the basic idea, but it was two years later when Higgs wrote a bigger paper in which he pointed out that there would be this particular particle, the Higgs boson, that it would have certain properties. It wouldn't have any spin, but it would decay. And the thing is, what does it decay into? Well, it decays into lots of things. But what's the relative chance it goes to that or that or that and so forth? Now, normally, um, particles, when they decay, produce light particles and they decay more easily than heavy ones. Roughly speaking, for the Higgs boson, it's the other way around. I say roughly speaking, but say there's a very characteristic pattern for the Higgs boson to decay into things, which is quite different than any other sorts of particles. And so that is why the discovery of the particle is very interesting, and the work that has been going on is now looking with as good a precision as we can get into how often does it decay into that channel or that or that, and are the relative percentages precisely what you'd expect uh, in the theory? And so far, the answer is yes. But at the moment, I mean, this is very early days, you know, we have big error bars on, on these numbers. They are all consistent with what the simple theory predicted. And so that is where it was about a year ago. And at the moment, um, the uh, accelerator and everything at CERN is sort of out of commission while it's being refurbished. And uh, it will start up again, hopefully, about this time next year with uh, about twice as much energy in the beams colliding head on. Now, twice as much energy doesn't sound a great improvement. However, it turns out, for technical reasons, that the improvement sort of grows exponentially. So when these collisions happen from next year onwards at this higher energy, they will have a huge sort of reach and precision relative to where we are at the moment. So you know, error bars of uncertainty this big now will come down like this. And so then, of course, what we hope, or what I hope is, that we will find, whereas the theory said it should be that, 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 and that, and at the moment the error bars are big and they're consistent with it, when they shrink down, we'll find that it's not quite right that there will be something that will give us a clue as to where to go next, because this cannot be the final answer for many reasons. One obvious one being this. Although it's the case we have found the mechanism that generates the masses for these fundamental particles, there is nothing at all in the theories that tells us why the particles have the masses that they do of a very fundamental kind. Why is the proton lighter than the neutron? If anybody knows the answer, let me know. Well, I, mean, I, I, I could say, I mean, an answer is because the down quark is heavier than the up quark, but why should that be so? But If you've never heard of quarks or hydronning at all, and you ask a student coming up for interview, would you expect the proton to be heavier than the neutron or the other way around? I would give the student credit if they answered, oh, I think the proton, because the proton and the neutron are identical except for the fact that the proton's got electric charge, and so there'll be a lot of energy associated with the electrostatic field which will make it heavier. And that's a pretty sensible answer. So the fact that experimentally the proton is lighter is a very surprising thing, but it's critical for us being here. The fact that the lightest particle of that family is electrically charged means that, well, the fact that it's the lightest means that it's stable, and the fact that it's electrically charged means it can attract electrons and make atoms. If the lightest thing was a neutron, protons would decay into neutrons, leaving a neutral object, you wouldn't have atoms, chemistry, life, or anything. So our existence depends on that, quote, accident or fundamental, who knows why, the fact that the proton is about one part in 2,000 
no, yeah, about that one part in 2000, light of the neutron is sufficient for us to be here. Secondly, the fact that the electron's mass is conveniently sort of midway in that little gap enables beta decay to happen and elements to change one to the other. So us being here is a result of many numbers being just right. And why that is so, I don't know. Whether, it is, whether there is a fundamental explanation of those numbers or whether they are in some sense accidental like the relative radii of the planets going around the sun. I mean, 200, 300 years ago, people were looking for some explanation of the pattern. Today, we know it's sort of random and accidental. We just simply don't know whether the, the masses are random and accidental or whether there is something fundamental out there to be discovered. So I'm hoping that as the more precise data on the Higgs become known in the next few years, there will be something quirky about them that will give us a clue as to where to go. Um, but at the moment, we know a lot, about 5% of the universe, and 95% of it, which is dark stuff, we don't know anything about yet. Um, and one thing which everybody forgets is, and we don't know why nature is left-handed. I mean, beta decay is different. I mean, neutrinos go one way or not the other when they spin. But the world behind the mirror is intrinsically different than the world in front of it, because... The weak interaction in the jargon violates parity. And that is put into all the equations by hand. Um, and if it was the case that the weak interactions did not violate parity, I'm not aware of anything that would go terribly wrong in us being here. Um, so that is a phenomenon that is put into the equations by hand. It is in, when you construct all the mathematics of this Higgs mechanism, you say, oh, yes, got to remember the weak interactions do it that way, and you put it in. Why that is so um, is another thing that we don't know. There's much more that we don't know than we do know, and I think probably it's better that I shut up now and you ask me the things that you would like to know, and then I can tell you that I don't know them. So over to you. That was really great. Thank you very much. Um, we'll now open the floor up to questions. You, you, you say that it's all true, um, the Higgs boson and all these things, and uh, that's a sort of quite a sort of strong statement. And to what degree of certainty right. is, it, is it true? Um, every test that we have been able to make so far is consistent with what the theory would predict. Um, you can never prove that something is true. You can always prove that you can always discover that it is not. So that is uh, the state at the moment. One of the surprises that I have, incidentally, is that what these guys did 50 years ago was come up with the simplest way of solving a particular problem. And in the intervening 50 years, there's been any number of structures that have used that and developed much richer schemes. The fact that what we have so far is bang on what that simplest idea was is uh, in a sort of way troubling. Hello. Uh, well, I've got a lot of things I want to ask. I think one of the most important ones. Um, I, mean, I suppose one of the things that I often wonder is, you, you mentioned about the 10 billion euros, and I'm considering the state of the world as it is, and the fact um, do you think it's still necessary that we spend 10 billion pounds on finding out things like this? Because we have wasted 100 years and spent £10 million on hospitals. Right. The, the answer to your first question is yes. The answer to your second question is no. And I should make the point, we didn't spend £10 billion on it. Oh, right. Because it wasn't us. That is the world, that's the cost of the whole of the world. Right. So that, so that is actually the cost to the whole of the world over 10, 15 years. And there are 6,000 scientists and engineers who are working on this, and if they weren't working on that, they'd be doing something else with their lives. I mean, the moment you start pointing it down, you realise that actually at the individual level, it is no more expensive or less expensive than many of the things that are going on uh, in research or, or in development in, in other places. Uh, having said that, the it is the only way that we know how to answer such questions and it is for society to decide whether society feels it is worth answering those questions. 
Um, you could always say, could we spend the money better on something else? The answer to that was always yes. However, it presupposes that there's some sort of rule that there's only some finite amounts that you, if you spend it on this, you don't spend it on that. And if you didn't do this, then there would be discoveries that you would not ever have made. For example, I mean, the number of times people have said, oh, the World Wide Web was invented as a result of this. Does that have any value to society? I mean, at one level, yes. Actually, it drives me crazy, so at another level, no, but you know what I mean. So this is sort of research that is done for the sake of knowledge and understanding alone. And it is surprising that when you do it, you discover things that you didn't know were there to be discovered, and then some other smart person will be able to make use of that. So it's in that sense that I would say that you have bought knowledge, which all future generations can make use of. Uh, I was just going to ask if there's, a, if there's any obvious practicalities that you can foresee coming out of it in terms of, you know, obviously like photons made lasers, you know, the discovery of the photon allows us to have lasers, for example. Well, I think it would be wrong to claim that the Higgs boson itself is going to have any practical use because the cost to make it is vast. However, the, if you had asked this question 20 years ago, I, just, I don't think we'd ever actually achieve it because the number of challenges for science and technology in a whole range of fields that would have to be conquered in order to make this experiment work was so challenging, I thought you know, it won't happen. But the goal was so great as a worldwide venture, people focused on that. And as a result of that, now we've had advances in computing, in uh, superconducting technologies, which are and ways of detecting particles and so forth, which you probably aren't aware of, the fact that these things are now being used in medicine and so on. That wasn't the purpose of doing it, but those things have come out from it. So I think that if you put a lot of smart people together and let them get on with something, good things will happen. I want you to ask about the mass of the Higgs boson. Mm. It seems strange when you think about photons that you know a quanta of electromagnetic field is the smallest thing, and yet a quanta of the Higgs field is a billion times bigger than a neutrino or something. So mm. how does that work, the, the quanta being much bigger <coughs> than the things it gives mass to? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that, that, that is one of the things... I. I don't know whether this is fundamental or not. I mean, that uh, uh, a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to understand, is there a pattern to these masses and so on? Uh, and I, I, I genuinely have no sense of whether this is the right question to be pursuing or whether it's completely the wrong question to be pursuing. I mean, that's why I gave the analogy, you know, 200 years ago, people were trying to understand why are the planetary orbits apparently um, proportional to some beautiful numbers they were trying to look for, whereas in actual fact we now know that they are sort of random accidents. Um, but it is certainly fair. I mean, the Higgs boson is not the most massive thing we know. The, the top quark is even more massive. And then, of course, there are people who then say, well, actually, it's intriguing because the, the Higgs boson is 125 GeV and the top quark is 180-something, which is about 50% heavier. And the Z boson is 90, which is half of that. And you start seeing patterns there. You know, but the thing is, there's any number of numbers around, you'll find patterns. But you know, they might be right, they might be wrong. I have no idea. Was this a question that was kind of just bubbled up, then sparked people's interest, and then there was kind of critical mass wanted to get yeah, critical mass that wanted to to answer this question, and then there was focus. Cool. Well, I mean, bearing in mind that this idea was 50 years ago, you can see there's a, a long story in here. First of all, in 1964, nobody took any notice of it. It wasn't until probably 1980 or so that the the belief began to grow that this actually was really something about nature that one might pursue. Um, but back in 1964, the, the frontiers of particle physics, I mean, the, that, well, probably just a few years before that, universities would tend to have their own sort of little accelerators in them. Um, by the 1960s, uh, in the UK, there were two uh, accelerators, one at Darsbury, one at the Rutherford Lab. Um, and then as the frontiers sort of became harder and harder to reach, uh, the individual national programs, at least here in Britain and some other places, closed so that the European nations could collectively come together to build CERN. And now already it's interesting what it sees here that there's not a simple answer to the question because 
the UK decided we had to close down our individual national accelerators in order to focus on CERN. Germany, however, went and built their own ones, and France and Italy. You know, so there's a political decision always there as to what one society thinks is more worth than another. But that's how it, it came. That as the machine got bigger, it became a bigger and bigger enterprise. So today, CERN, although it is based in Geneva, and it is directly funded by about 15 uh, European nations, it is a world venture in the sense that people from North America and, and former Soviet Union are all taking part in the experiments and they contribute in kind. I mean, those huge detectors, um, they have their individual components have been built around the world and funded in different places around the world. So we came back to where I started. You throw this 10 billion euro figure out and it's huge until you realize, in fact, it's spread literally worldwide and it's spread over 20 years. And suddenly it is actually at the university level no more and probably less than the university is doing research into some area of low, low temperature superconductivity or something like that. The question that probably is behind you is, can one go any further? And the answer is, I think, unless one has some breakthroughs in technology of how one accelerates particles, probably not. However, we're being blasted by cosmic rays from outer space all the time. And the cosmic rays have much higher energies than anything we make at CERN. However, they're very sparse and random, so you can't control them. So this is the give and take. Are you suggesting that uh, for the new kind of Michelson-Morley experiment using particles different from photons, you might be able to detect an absolute rate? Um, no, I'm not seriously suggesting that. But uh, I'm just saying it's interesting that the, with the history of what happened, that Higgs and Co. made a relativistic generalization of the, the non-relativistic picture of the plasma. Um, a man called Kibble at Imperial College, three years later, took to my mind the most significant step. And uh, just jumping sideways, I was tipping three people out of those six for the Nobel Prize. Peter Higgs, who got it, because he was the one who pointed out the experimental consequence. Francoise Anglaire, who also got it because he was the first surviving person to publish the basic idea, and Tom Kibble, because he was the one who actually showed how to make contact with the real world. That you know, what they had done was to show here's a clever mathematical way that you can give par certain particles mass. Kibble showed how to make that theory so that you could give mass to some things but not others. So Kibble showed how to keep the photon massless and give mass to the things you wanted. Uh, so the fact that uh, it has all been set up satisfying relativity uh, is self-consistent. I was just making a sort of slightly specious but nonetheless intriguing remark that you have, in a sense, reinvented the ether. Um, and they've done it in a way that satisfies relativity. But it's intriguing that the experimental evidence against the ether, as we now call this field, was using a probe that is not sensitive to it. If we change the universe, yes, imagine a science fiction universe where the photon had a mass. Then that would reveal the presence of this ether. But of course, that universe is not the one we live in. And you see, you can't change the rules without bringing the whole structure down. A, a universe where the photon has a mass is not a universe where relativity happens, blah, 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 blah. So it's sort of science fiction in that sense. The bottom line is there is no problem with regards to the ether contradicting all of this stuff. I think that's the thing to take away. I think the bottom line really is, what is this Higgs field really? Well, l let me tell you what it isn't. Um, I mean, if I ask the question, what is an electromagnetic field or what is a gravitational field? Because that's something we're more familiar with. And you be begin to now see the sort of problem. Well, a gravitational field, I know what it does. I mean, I, I know that if I uh, take this book off the table and let go, it'll fall to the ground. But you can imagine freezing the picture for a second how does that book, suspended momentarily in space, know that there is the Earth down there dragging it? So we invent this concept that we call the gravitational field, and that this thing sits in the gravitational field. And thanks to Newton and others, we work out all the rules of what should happen next, etc., and it all works. So in that sense, the Higgs field is a concept that has been created, and we work out the rules and so on. Um, however, 
uh, it is still a legitimate question, what do we know about it? Well, we know that it doesn't have any sense of direction. I mean, whereas an electric field is a vector, it's... The, let's take an analogy of um, the weather. So air pressure, you, you see a weather map, air pressure, uh, 995 or 1,020 millibars, blah, blah, blah. So that is a scalar field. It's just a number at every point. Um, the, the rate that those numbers change give you the direction of the wind. The wind is a vector. So if it's coming from the north or the south, it gives you a different effect. Okay, so the electric field is a vector. The gravitational field is actually a tensor. They've both got sense of direction. The Higgs field uniquely uh, in the fundamental fields has no sense of direction at all. It is just a number, like, like, like pressure. Okay, right. <laughs> um, but but it, is, it is quite a legitimate question, I think, really behind you is, um, when you say, is it variable? Let, let, let's, let's put it like this. I drew the analogy of the plasma to begin with. Um, and that is a legitimate analogy. That is, as I said, uh, that is a phenomenon that was known before Higgs et al. And if you look at Higgs's paper, he says on the first page, this is nothing more than a relativistic analogue of that plasma example. So let's go to the plasma. See, why does a plasma do those weird things in electromagnetic waves? It's due to a very fundamental asymmetry. That, I mean, a plasma, let me just say what it is, whereas uh, you know, the atoms that we are made of, there's a solid positive nucleus with a set of electrons whirling around it, you know, each one relative to the next. A plasma has got all the protons there, but the electrons go whizzing all around, any place. So when an electric field, or when an electromagnetic wave arrives, the electric field will give a kick to electrically charged particles. So they will recoil. You know, force is mass times acceleration. There's an electric force, charge times the electric field. Hits the proton, that's so darn massive, it just stays there. The little flighty electron, however, recoils. And that little charge accelerates, and that disturbs the propagation of the field. And that, at the end of the day, when you do all the maths, is why a plasma has this weird property. However, if the proton's mass was the same as the electron's mass, both of them would respond when the wave came in. And basically, they would all cancel out. So the wave would ca quite happily pass through. So the fact that the the real plasma that we have known of for, for many years, which inspired them into this idea, that does its stuff, is because there's a manifest asymmetry in it. Massive positive charges and lightweight negative charges. So one possibility is that this Higgs field that we're talking about itself has some dynamical structure to it. And one of the many ideas that has been generated uh, over the years, uh, by analogy with that plasma, is that maybe massive things, like the, I mentioned the top quark, the most massive thing that we know. Um, could it be that top quarks and top antiquarks act collectively to give this effective field? I, mean, I don't know if any people here are into superconductivity, and if I say words like um, Cooper pairs, whether they mean anything to anybody. In that case, I won't mention them. Okay. <laughs> but but, the, but in, uh, superconductivity is an analogy of this, where pairs of electrons moving around inside the superconductor, they act cooperatively as if they were a single particle with no spin overall. The Cooper pairs in superconductivity are the analogues of the Higgs bosons. So one possibility is that the Higgs boson is not actually a basic fundamental particle, but will eventually be seen to be composed of two spin-a-half somethings. Um, and that is, that is one thing I hope we might discover when these data get much better. We will start seeing if there are hints that the Higgs boson actually does have structure. Um, we know nothing at all. I mean, we, we have identified how to produce a single Higgs boson one at a time. But how Hig an individual Higgs boson and another one, if they were there together, interact to collectively build up this entity, we know nothing about. And that, I think, experimentally, we are probably likely to know nothing about for a long, long time. Um, so there's any number of things one can begin to ask about it. All that we know at the moment is pretty primitive. We know it's got no mass. We know how much energy it takes to make it bubble up. We know that it doesn't care about direction, and that's it. We know that when particles pass through it, they interact with it and gain a mass. 
but we put the numbers in to show I, I, I know that an electron only interacts with it a little bit because it's got little mass. Another particle interacts with a lot because it's got a lot of mass, but I put that into the equation. So we don't know where those come from. So we've opened a tantalizing door, but that's the nature of research. You discover questions you didn't know where to ask. I shall shut up because there'll be one to ask questions. Can you say something about the Higgs The first question, I think, was, is there any relationship between the Higgs boson and inflation of the early universe? Okay. That, that, that was the question, okay. to which my answer is, that's beyond my pay grade, unfortunately. <laughs> and the answer is, that's beyond my pay grade, but... My understanding from seminars that I hear from people who are much nearer to that than I am, that although there is a common property that the Higgs boson has no sense of direction and the inflaton, to give it the jargon word, also has no sense of direction, apart from that, there is no connection between them. Having said that, however, you know, one feels on the sense of economy that I mean, it, w it would be nice if there was, but you know, may maybe you'll get a different answer in a few years' time, but uh, that's a, a fair one. Supersymmetry, though, is a much more interesting question, and I think it's this, that I mean, nobody's directly asked about dark matter, which makes up 95% of everything. I mean, dark matter is stuff that doesn't shine in any electromagnetic wavelength, which means that whatever it is, it's, consist it's made of stuff that we don't yet know. There are no none of the known particles that have the requisite properties. I mean, neutrinos could have, except that neutrinos being light don't, don't fit other things. So dark matter, which we are aware of indirectly by the fact that it appears to tug on the galaxies and their motions cannot be explained unless you suppose that 95% of the stuff out there is made of this dark stuff, is made of particles that we don't yet know. And it is interesting that there are theories called supersymmetric theories that were invented back in the 1970s for quite different reasons, um, for which there is no evidence yet, <laughs> I hasten to say, but those theories are there. They have experimentally testable consequences. In particular, in some versions of those theories, there are relatively stable uh, particles with all the characteristics of dark particles. And one of the hopes has been, and still is, that these things will be produced in these experiments at the LHC. I would say that one of the great disappointments for people who have invested a lot into supersymmetry theory has been that no sign of these things has yet appeared. And I would say that if five years from now no sign of these things has appeared, then, Houston, there is a problem for people. Um, but if these things... Something makes dark matter, there's no question about that. And it is then reasonable to say that, I mean, the dark matter particles have to be massive, and it is then very natural to say, where do they get their mass from? By interacting with dark Higgs. And these supersymmetric theories do predict that, in fact, the Higgs boson that we have found so far is one of a family of Higgsons with a range of, uh, of spins and properties. Um, so the possibility that, buried in the data so far, we've seen the obvious signal of the Higgs that is the easy one to find, but we will eventually find lurking uh, a whole family of them. So that is certainly quite possible. But I would certainly say that dark matter is an issue and something has to be responsible for it and I hope that we find a clue at the particle level what it is. I just wondered, like, the only, the only thing we know about dark matter is, is the, um, what it appears to do to galactic spin, to expansion and so forth. Um, can't there be other mechanisms just as likely or just as potential, and, and yeah. also don't require invention of whole new lots of particles that we've never even had no idea about the mechanism. Uh, I mean, yes, the, the answer is yes. Um, something called MOND, which stands for Modification of Newtonian Dynamics. Uh, Moshe Milgram uh, in Israel, I think it was at the Weizmann Institute, uh, for a long time has been sort of pointing out that you know, the inverse square law of gravity over what, you know, how well has it been tested, you know, in laboratory over certain distances, yes, and uh, over other distances. But, you know, over uh, cosmological scales, how good is the evidence and so forth? Um, and to my mind, it has never been conclusively shown that this does not work. However, uh, what has happened over the years is that as more precise data has come along, the, the possibilities have been squeezed more and more. And one has the impression, and I, I'm, to be fair, I'm speaking as an outsider on this, but I have the impression that one is 
in the light of new data, one's always having to readjust things to make it fit a posteriori. There has not, to my knowledge, been a clear-cut prediction that has come along and people said, aha, in fact, quite contrary, that things have been discovered which seem to go against it and it's had to be readjusted. So although the sort of general feeling is that MOND doesn't work, I don't think you can rule it out. Um, but there's certainly, I would say, there is as much evidence for or against MOND as there is for or against dark particles or supersymmetry. But I can say that in this company, but some people would probably kill me if I said that out in public. <laughs> well, in fact, I said to a supersymmetric person last night over a glass of champagne, uh, I said, no, MOND and supersymmetry are the same. I said, both of them, as more data come along, you're being squeezed into a smaller and smaller little area. And he didn't like it. But, uh, <laughs> I do have a bad dream sometimes, which is this, that actually, um, I mean, the, the Planck scale, uh, far out beyond anything we do in experiments, but the scale where gravity finally becomes strong, that maybe all of the real symmetries of nature are, are there. And it's just happened a few bits and pieces dribbled down to low enough mass that they made stuff like us. And we've discovered them. And the Higgs boson happens to be the last of this little lot. But the real answers are out there, out of reach. And that dark particles have masses of Planck scale. And the, uh, the supersymmetry is at the Planck scale. Um, because I think it's fair to say that although I mean, even I find the mathematical beauty of supersymmetry compelling, but there is nothing in there that says where in the mass scale it is. The possibility it's all out there, out of reach, and we've found the bits and pieces that we can find. That is the bad dream at the moment. I think you've definitely earned a second packet of peanuts. Fantastic job. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Details of our upcoming events can be found at our website, www.oxfordcybar.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Oxford Cybar and on Facebook, British Science Association Oxfordshire Branch.